talking ICBC. When will you be able to get a road test? Now, remember, ICBC road tests have been shut down since March. How many road tests have been canceled so far? About 50,000. 50,000 road tests canceled. And I'll tell you what, it's causing problems for some businesses. I talked to a guy last week on the show. He runs a small trucking company. He's got a new truck. He had to upgrade his license to drive it. He could not get a license, no road test. So his truck has been parked for the last three months. His business is hanging by a thread. ICBC on the show today. We'll talk about that. Here's another one. Are you ever going to get a rebate on your ICBC? ICBC saving a lot of money because there are fewer people driving. There's fewer accident claims. Other provinces are giving out a rebate. What's going on with ICBC? Where's my rebate? We'll talk about that on the show today. Also on the show today, Serb scammers. Now, you think about this now. You got over, what, 8 million people on the Serb. $44 billion flowing out the door. You think that maybe there's a few scammers out there that are pocketing this money when they're not supposed to? Yeah, I think so. This is like maybe ringing the dinner bell for grifters and ripoff artists. What is the government going to do about these Serb scammers? We'll talk about that today on the show as well. We got tons more on the show today. The show was totally packed today. We could talk about stray cat apocalypse during this pandemic. Okay, okay, maybe not apocalypse, but have you noticed maybe there's more stray cats kind of strutting around the Metro Vancouver streets? The Vancouver Orphan Kitten Rescue Association has noticed that. Their uh, operations have been impacted big time during this pandemic. So we'll talk about that, too. And here's another one. Uh, really looking forward to this one. Did you hear about that uh, treasure chest in the United States? This is such a wild story. There's that millionaire down in New Mexico. He made his money in the antique business, and he says he buried a treasure chest in the wilderness in the Rocky Mountains over 10 years ago. And people have been looking for this treasure chest ever since. He put out some clues to it in a book. Like five people died looking for this thing. Now they say it has finally been found. Now, some people think it's still a bit of a scam, although a lot of people say it's the real deal. I'm going to speak to a an American treasure hunter. She spent years looking for this thing. She's got lots of great stories to tell. So there's all that, all of that, and lots more. But first, we kick it off with ICBC. Now, have a listen to this. This is that truck driver I spoke to on the show last week. His name is Jonathan Dooling, and he was frustrated that he could not get his ICBC road test. Here he is. I need my class three for the new one, as I, as I told you. And yeah. I passed the knowledge test for the class three in early March before the COVID crisis. Uh, no more road tests uh, in mid-March, as you know. And right, so- I'm, left, I'm left here shouting my head off to ICBC. And I feel like the beast can't hear me. Okay, this poor guy, I feel for him because his trucking company, he hauls uh, fresh fruit around in the BC interior. It's cherry season. You know, he told me the cherries are ripening. He's got to get behind the wheel and start driving his truck. ICBC is not giving him that road test. Now, David Eby was on the show earlier, t- uh, earlier today with Jill Bennett, and he talked about this guy, and uh, here's what Eby said. Uh, responding to uh, a trucker uh, on uh, on Mike Smith's show the other day is uh, that truckers are traveling all over the place, uh, both within Canada and 
um, within the province. And so we need to make sure that ICBC does not act as a vector of transmission of a virus to truckers who are going to be heading to remote communities across the province. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, both the uh, examiners are safe and the person who is taking the test, unfortunately, in the period uh, leading up to the cancellation of driver's tests, there was an exposure of a driver or of a driver examiner to COVID. What's he talking about? This is essential service trucking. He's talking about truck drivers spreading COVID around. This is an essential service. Give the guy his license. Guy's going out of business. Let's check in with Jazz Johal now. He's a liberal uh, ICBC critic for the official opposition. Jazz, thanks for coming on. What do you think about this case? So, you know, look, uh, I'm glad you covered the story uh, the other day because the day after ICBC puts out this press release saying uh, driver's tests uh, will begin next week. Uh, But for Mr. Eby to say today that, oh, their vectors are going to be spreading um, COVID around the province. Look, we've all stayed home for the last uh, few months for that very reason. And they're an essential service. And you're right. The challenge we have is two things. One, public safety. But in this case, we have to get our economy running as well. It does not help the economy of British Columbia when people like Jonathan Dooling, who just spent $77,000 a truck uh, for his truck, is going bankrupt because he can't work. You know, he did nothing wrong. And for Mr. Eby to say, well, we have to protect the, the public, what's well, got nothing to do with that? Mr. Dooling is a responsible individual. You are, I am. We all take care. We all wash our hands. We all do the things that Dr. Henry is asking us to do. This is about ICBC's ability to get up and start doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is providing road tests. I mean, in fact, right. if, if, if Saskatchewan started this nearly a month ago, why is ICBC just getting around to doing this now? May 11th is when Saskatchewan started in road tests. And Manitoba has followed, and ICBC is far behind, and we are going to start next week at a very, very slow pace, and I don't think that's acceptable at all. Okay, well, the good news is I I think this story sort of gave uh, ICBC a kick in the pants here, because yesterday they put out a news release saying, like you said, they are going to begin a phased-in restart of road tests. Now, starting June 11th, which is today... Uh, customers can phone a, a special phone line here if you're looking for a commercial driver's license. So that that line is open today, 1-800-950-1498 is the number. If you're looking for a commercial driver's license, you can phone that number today. And that's good. And I, I think that this, I honestly think that this guy telling his story Gave them a kick in the ass here to, to get them moving. Um, here is David Eby, again, speaking earlier today with Jill Bennett on how ICBC will plan to deal with the huge backlog of these tests. Uh, there are two uh, uh, separate uh, policy responses that ICBC is looking at to minimize the backlog. One is offering extended hours uh, and, uh, and training additional ICBC employees to do these exams. And the second is uh, I'd ask them to look at the possibility of making sure that everybody gets at least one shot. But if they fail their test, uh, that uh, they have to wait a little bit longer as everybody tries for the first time. I I guess, Jazz, what do you think about that? I mean, I think maybe the people who have been waiting the longest should maybe go to the front of the line. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this? No, I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, what concerns me is, uh, I think Jonathan uh, did, uh, mentioned this in, in, in his interview, you know, sometimes people don't always pass their first test, and, and, and I get that, and it does happen. If yeah. uh, in, in any other time, you would build that in. In this case, I think Mr. Dooling had to cancel his, um, uh, had his appointment canceled in April for his road test, so he may miss, if he, if he has to go for that second time, and I'm just using this as an example, not that it's going to happen, but if it did, right. 
he could potentially miss the entire uh, fruit season or a good chunk of it because he's sitting there waiting. I just don't understand how in Saskatchewan, literally on May 11th, so a month before ICBC, they've started tests. So they were preparing for this. They got it up and running, and they were doing a lot of them, probably about three to 400 a week at that particular point. It's a smaller wow. province, less people. But here we are. We're just starting today and booking them, and next week they'll start uh, providing some of those tests. But we were doing up to 7,000 tests a week, so up to twenty yeah. to 25,000 a month, if not more. I'm right. not sure how they're going to be able to catch up quickly, and this is a, a huge issue for this economy. It's not okay. just a, a guy driving a truck. It's people taking who have taking, gone to driving school and waiting to, to work and can't get a test. It's the person who wants to drive a few hours for a ride-healing company and a student who's just got the first their, their first uh, um, uh, license. So they want to get out and do their test as well. So it, it, it's, it impacts every region of this province, and every one of my MLA colleagues have been getting livid calls, just waiting for direction. So I'm glad we're starting, but there's a huge backlog, uh, backlog out there, and, and there's a tremendous amount of frustration. Well, so I hope we can get this up and running quick. I, I asked DB the other day, about those other provinces that you mentioned have already started their road testing again. And he said, well, come on, you know, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, they have got fewer cases of COVID than BC. But like, can we exercise a little common sense here? Like if you take a look at this poor guy who's been waiting for his road test for three months, he's in Quesnel. How many cases of, of how many cases of COVID they got in Northern BC? Like not many, like let's go, let's go here. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, he raises a very good issue there, uh, um, Michael, is that there is an underlying current of frustration in the interior that, look, we have less cases. We have less, certainly less density than Vancouver. Can we not move a little faster? Right. Uh, And they're doing that a bit of an, in Ontario where the core area of Toronto is still having to deal with the rules that uh, we've often had, had to deal with in, in, in the city but they're loosening some of the rules in, uh, in, in the rural areas. And so you add to that the inability of somebody to work, uh, there is a tremendous amount of frustration. Once, I said, once again, if you give people clarity, they'll put up yeah. with some of this stuff so they can at least make plans for their life. Right. And that's sure. the fundamental issue here, is that we now, beyond the public safety and health issue, we have got to have a plan for economic recovery. There okay. are four to 500,000 British Columbians out of work. There are going to be small businesses that will not survive and have not survived, and moving forward will not survive in the months ahead. Okay, so we have now got to yeah. shift from public safety and health, which is a priority, don't get me wrong, but yeah. what is your plan for economic recovery? And at this point, we can't even do commercial driving tests, and that is scares the heck out of me because moving forward, we got to start building this economy back. Let's talk about the CERB program now, and a lot of people have collected uh, the CERB payments in our country. 8.4 million people have applied for the CERB, $44 billion uh, going out the door. Do you think there could possibly be any scamming going on? Maybe people are pocketing this money when they are not eligible to do so. There's some evidence that that's going on. There's been lots of calls to the government's tip line about people who are taking this money when they're not eligible to uh, take it. But I, I think that the uh, scamming on this program is probably bigger than we realize. Now, what's going to be done about it? Well, the federal government, uh, the Trudeau liberals, said they wanted to put uh, get a bill in the House of Commons here that would bring in some penalties for fraudulently claiming the SERB benefit. It would include a $5,000 fine. Uh, possibly up to six months in jail for scamming the CERB system. Here's another one here. Claimants who refuse to go back to work. I've heard a lot about this. 
You got people who are collecting $2,000 a month, right, on CERB. Then the boss says, hey, it's time to come back to work, and they don't go back to work. They'd rather collect the CERB. Ooh, yeah. Okay, so this bill says there'd be a penalty for people who fail to return to work when it is reasonable to return to work. What is going on with this bill? Well, guess what? The opposition parties, or a lot of them, ganged up here, and uh, they don't want this bill to go forward, at least in its uh, present form. Uh, the Greens, the Bloc Québécois, and the NDP all denied unanimous consent uh, to this to this motion. Let's um, check in now with uh, Conservative MP Dan Albus. He is the uh, official opposition employment critic. Dan, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. What do you think about Serb, uh, Serb scams here? Do you think something should be done about it, and do you think it's a problem? Well, we've been highlighting this, this problem to the government. When I raised it with the Prime Minister directly during one of our virtual sessions, uh, you know, he said that uh, you know, he trusted Canadians and that the system was fine and uh, that everything would uh, be dealt with what they, uh, on the back end in terms of integrity. Um, but you know, this is the same government that sent guidance to their own public servants to actively ignore claims that did not seem proper or eligible and approved the payments anyway. We have these guidance documents. And so this, I believe, uh, you know, the, the bureaucracy has probably raised to them how much fraud has gone on, which has caused the government that claimed it wasn't an issue and conservatives, you're just scaremongering to suddenly requiring, uh, you know, criminal penalties and uh, financial penalties. And so, um, you know, it seems to me that if it's not a problem, then why would the government be so desperate to, to put this on after the fact? Okay, so you believe there, you therefore believe there should be penalties, fines, and maybe even imprisonment for people who misuse the CERB? Look, conservatives have been focused all along on helping Canadians who lost their job during the crisis through no fault of their own. Um, but what we've also been highlighting is the government shouldn't be deliberately ignoring fraud. And, you know, one, as you said earlier, it, it, the, the cost of this has been a gigantic. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think anyone supports uh, fraudsters or people that just feel that they want to take what's been called to me a Serb vacation um, because that's... That's not what the money is there for. This is money that we are borrowing at interest, right. and every bit of it will have to be paid back. Um, and so, you know, I've heard in, uh, you know, the Penticton area, uh, through the Penticton Herald, Bob Hughes from Ask Wellness, uh, who supplies, uh, you know, so social housing uh, to a number of people, that he's instructed his own uh, staff to not touch CERB applications. They often help with uh, social assistance and other uh, government programs. Um, he doesn't want it, and he's actually written to the uh, Minister of National Revenue saying that there's a big problem with fraud here. Yeah, I think if you take a look at some of the unemployment numbers that came out from Statistics Canada and you compare those statistics to the number of people who have applied for the CERB, I don't know, there's a lot of evidence there that there are potentially uh, hundreds of thousands of people who are collecting this benefit improperly. Now, now the government has said that the Canada Revenue Agency has received 1,300 tips about potential misuse of the CERB, 1,300. What do you think of that number? Is that like a tip of the iceberg? Do you think it's a lot bigger than that? Well, about a week ago, it was 600, so it's more than doubled in 10 days. 
So, uh, you know, Mike, and this is the problem is, is that right from the very beginning, the government wasn't square with the Canadian people as to who was eligible and who wasn't. In fact, many Liberal MPs, including some ministers, when we're responding to questions, would say students are eligible, although another minister would say, no, students are not eligible. That's why they came up with a different uh, student benefit uh, specifically for students. Um, you know, I'm getting calls on a regular basis from people that say, well, you know, I accidentally applied for this. I've come to find that I'm not eligible. How do I return it? Um, and so, you know, the government hasn't done a good job of communicating this. And I will tell you this. Any time that a fraudster has sees an opportunity to get away with something, they will try. I've heard oh, yeah. instances of where people, uh, you know, have gone on to their MyCRA and have noted that somehow they've applied for the CERB and didn't apply. They're victims of identity fraud. So, right. you know, when I've tried to take the ministers to task on this, they continue to say it's not an issue. But by this bill, Mike, it's an admission that they have set this program up where it is obviously being abused. Well, yeah, I think the fact, the very, like you said, the very fact the government has introduced a bill like this or want to get it, want to get this bill in front of the House of Commons uh, indicates they realize that there is there is fraud going on. Some people have paid money back. The CRA says, says nearly two hundred thousand people have paid money back that they received uh, improperly, maybe by a legit mistake, like you said, and, and and that's good that people are honest. But let me let me play this for you, um, Dan. This is. Jugmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, and he is not in favor of threatening people with fines or jail time for cheating the CERB program. Here is Jugmeet Singh. We want to see the penalties removed. If the government wants to recover money that someone received that they didn't need, use the tax system. There's no reason to threaten people, to scare people with criminal um Offense, effectively criminal offenses to put people in jail and to give them massive fines that's the wrong way to go about it okay he says stop scaring people threatening to put them in jail this is a pandemic this is a crisis we shouldn't be scaring people like this your thoughts well i, I find it interesting that the ndp joined with the liberals just what 10 days ago and closed parliament down uh, and so now mr singh has concerns the proper place for that quite honestly is for any mp to speak up on behalf of their constituents is in the House of Commons. Uh, but, you know, yesterday we offered the government to simply we can get on with this discussion right now. They rejected that because they don't want a regular House coming. They basically want to program how uh, our parliamentary democracy works, and that, that doesn't fly in a minority government. So, you know, Mr. Singh is correct that uh, there may be some people that do not have proper access to daycare, or maybe they are worried about uh, a lack of PPE uh, or workplace safety. That is an issue. But, you know, again, the government needs to face scrutiny by parliamentarians uh, so people like me can get up and ask whether or not the government is doing a good job uh, in its legislation. And Mr. Singh would then be able to put forward amendments that he thinks is correct and then yeah. stand by uh, his vote. Right. So yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Mike, you know, yeah. this this is what we have. This is where no one can advance uh, anything because uh, the government won't allow it. OK, do you think that the NDP has raised an alarm on this saying that if you threaten people with fines or jail time for cheating this program, there may be people out there who are legitimately suffering out of work during this pandemic who will be afraid to actually apply for the program because they're afraid of getting thrown in jail or fined if they if they don't deserve to take the money. Do you think that's a legit complaint? Do you think there's like people out there who say, oh, oh, I better not apply for this in case I get thrown in jail? 
Well, I, I think most people understand when they, they qualify, and, and the eligibility uh, requirements are, are, are pretty low as it is. Um, you know, so, so quite honestly, I don't think it's, it's taken that as a program. Uh, what, what, again, is, is problematic is, is that the Liberals, like always, um, just shunts it off to the public service, because what will happen, Mike, is uh, many of these audits won't proceed right away. It might take up to three years or longer uh, for the CRA to come to you. And then if someone has a legitimate excuse, um, you know, where they couldn't get daycare, how do they prove that to the CRA? As you know, the CRA at the best of times is difficult uh, because they want everything documented when they do an audit. Um, and so, you know, it is a legitimate concern. That's why we need to have Parliament back so we can go through these things, study the bill, scrutinize it, tighten it up. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have a regular sitting. And I put that firmly on Mr. Singh because he co-opted along with uh, the Prime Minister to shut Parliament down. Okay, speaking to conservative employment critic Dan Albus, conservative MP for Central Okanagan, what about people who are collecting the CERB right now? You can get $2,000 a month, and then on top of that, you can earn another 1000 a month without having your benefits clawed back. So that's like 3000 a month. Do you think for some people that is a disincentive to go back to work? Because part of this bill includes uh, penalties for people who refuse a reasonable return to work uh, call. So if, if the boss calls you and says, okay, time to come back to work, and you say, well, I'm making 3000 a month, why, why would I go back to work? I'm making 2000 bucks a month. You think that's a problem? You think there's maybe some people doing that, like not going back to work when they should go back to work? Well, when the CERB first came out, well, let's go back that it, it, there wasn't even an exemption for $1,000. So if, if right. you earned a dollar, technically, uh, you weren't eligible for that because uh, of the rules that the Liberals originally set up. This is the problem when we pass legislation in a single day, which is what the Prime Minister prefers. You don't ask these questions. So we always have oh, to you do guys a voted for it, though. Sitting. Uh, you guys well, voted yeah, for it. Uh, well, actually, on, on, on the bill that created the CERB, uh, it actually uh, just passed on a voice vote, uh, and some members had said that they weren't supportive of it. Um, but again, the, the, these are procedural things here, um, and we had to go back, and we had to then address it. And so we called upon the government to, to create a, a threshold so people weren't um, you know, taken, taken back. But I also will tell you that when I talk to business owners, some have said that uh, it is harder to get people back because they're worried about going past on their... Uh, over a thousand dollars over that four-week period so you know uh, the government in this new bill that we we talked about yesterday would allow it so that uh, it would break up into two-week sessions which is probably easier for people to determine it um, but ultimately mike you know the, like that's you know the government put forward a temporary program it's very expensive the parliamentary budget office said yesterday it will cost another 60 billion dollars plus uh, you know, to uh, to extend this program and then to even deal with some of the disincentives. Okay, so are you, these are, are the guys... issues, and we need to bring all of them in, and that's where getting it to Parliament counts. Okay, speaking of extending it, there's a lot of people, like you said, this is a temporary program. A lot of people are set to max out on it if they've been on it for, is it four months is the maximum? Yes. Yeah, four months. So, right, so people are coming up against that that first sort of maxing out deadline. A lot of people are still out of work, as we know. Do you think the program should be extended? Uh, you know, like you said, could the, the Parliamentary Budget Office said it could cost up to $60 billion to extend yes. it. Do you think it should be extended? 
Well, you know, this is the problem. Some provinces are opening, some provinces are not. Some industries are resuming, some are not. And so the pressure is going to be on the government. Now, they do have it by regulation where they can extend it. They don't need to bring that back to Parliament. Um, But that's where I asked the question of the Parliamentary Budget Officer. uh, If it needs to go past October, which is all the government can can do by regulation, what would it cost to do another 12 weeks? And that's where we start looking, uh, you know, at least 56 billion dollars uh is what they're what they're kind of right, counting so should, on should they and do that more, that's if my, you want to deal with the incentive issues you talked about earlier about raising the threshold right on, but my uh, question, how much you can work my question to you is should they extend it or not well you know if that if there's a need parliament has already given them that and uh that's really it's where right. it's up to the government they're, they're they're the ones that are speaking with premiers on a regular okay. basis uh and speaking to different groups so Parliament has already given that. They just believe that, that they have to look at it. And quite honestly, I believe that there's a lot of people in very tough times. And quite honestly, if we left them alone, our social assistance, uh, uh, you know, provincial systems would probably be overwhelmed. Okay. Thank um, you. So, you know, I, I would say that uh, if the need is there, then the government can. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much, Mike. The uh, impact of this pandemic on stray pets, especially stray cats on the streets of Metro Vancouver, uh, let me introduce you now to Maria Sarosky. She runs an awesome organization in Vancouver, the Vancouver Orphan Kitten Rescue Association, and she's been working. She's been working with that association for a long time. They do wonderful work. Hi, Maria. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming. What did you think of that Stray Cat Strut song? Did you like that? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I used to like that band, the Stray Cats. They were great. They were great. Um, let me ask you about what's going on over at the uh, the Orphan Kitten Rescue Association. How have your operations been impacted over there by this pandemic? Oh, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, our provincial government deemed animal rescues as essential service. Okay, so that good. was really great that we could continue our work during the pandemic because, you know, stray cats don't for anything so it is it has affected us in a few ways you want me to talk about that sure sure please tell me okay well first of all you know in march when there was the lockdown um we have a building in east vancouver which houses our cats when they first come into our rescue And we have many volunteers that come and feed and clean them. Plus, we have reception and, oh, that's my washing machine. (laughs) Can you hear it? No, 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 (laughs) it's okay. It's fine. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so our volunteers, usually we have, you know, five people on a morning shift, five people in an evening, midterm, reception, that sort of thing. And because of the lockdown and social distancing and that sort of thing, We've only had one volunteer at a time come in for their shift. So it's rather difficult. You know, Karen and I are here every day and we're social distancing, wearing masks, that sort of thing, and helping out the volunteers feed and clean. So that's one aspect of, you know, COVID. The other is... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Have you noticed, Maria... uh, are there any more cats, stray cats out on the streets during this pandemic? I think that's something you mentioned to me yesterday yeah. when we chatted on the phone. What what have your observations been on that? Yeah, well, you know, there's always been a housing crisis, especially the last 
three years. So the housing crisis still has gone on despite COVID. Low-income people are having a heck of a time finding anywhere they can afford. And then, of course, um, landlords cannot accept pets. So that's another problem, right? So that's been ongoing even through the crisis. Um, you know, we we have been seeing a lot more in the last three years of stray cats, mm. uh, homeless cats on the street. People call us and they've been feeding them. They've been staying in their yard the whole time. So we do know that they're stray. So we've been able to, during the crisis, um, still go out and get those cats. It's been, you know, a little difficult because you still have to social distance and wear gloves when you're, you know, at the people's residence and capturing these cats. But yeah, there's still, there's still stray cats out there. Talking to Maria Sarosky from the Vancouver Orphan Kitten Rescue Association. Do you find that, um, I know that during this pandemic, I know some veterinarians had stopped mm-hmm. or at least or at least reduced the number of spay and neutering procedures they were doing. Mm-hmm. Has that impacted you guys at all? And do you have any concerns mm-hmm. that that could lead to sort of maybe a baby boom of unwanted kittens <laughs> down the road? Yes, exactly. Um, when the lockdown came down, the BCVMA, which is the governing body of veterinarians in BC, directed their vets not to do spaying and neutering. They wanted them only to do crisis intervention for animals that are sick or, you know, in crisis. They could deal with them. Um, They also had to take many precautions with people coming into their clinics. So they would have the owner of the cat or us, for instance, uh, drop the cat off at the door and then they would take it in and deal with it. Now, we are so fortunate with Vokra. We have two vets in Vancouver who have continued to do spay and neuters for us, but it's only on a very limited basis. They can take perhaps maybe one or two a day. So we've been lucky that way, but I know a lot of the vets in Vancouver um, are not doing spay and neuters for people who own cats and need them fixed, right? Yeah. Um, I know the SPCA had shut down for a while and they weren't doing low-income spay and neuters. Um, so it's been a problem. We've been lucky, like I said, we have two vets. Um, but, you know, other areas are not so lucky, and especially the smaller towns, um north of metro vancouver in the province are having a heck of a time so yeah mike there's going to be a baby boom and um kittens are starting to be born now so it's going to be a problem okay you guys might be uh might be busy over there i have a feeling at the orphan (laughs) rescue association um how are do you guys have any kittens for up for adoption right now if people were interested yeah we have kittens um not for adoption at the moment but coming up soon We've had um, some pregnant cats off the streets and um, some mum and kittens from Surrey. We take um, a lot of the cats from Surrey because we're our mandate, Mike, is moms and kittens, kittens under one year, uh, pregnant cats is our mandate. But in Vancouver and Burnaby, we also help out the stray cats. So there's going to be kittens coming up. If anybody's interested, they can get on a waiting list. 
Okay, and just uh, wait about a minute left here, Maria. Is there still a problem with feral cats, like cats that have kind of yeah. gone returned to the wild in Metro Vancouver? Is that still an issue? Um, yeah, not in Vancouver, um, okay. because of all the good work we've done over Yeah, you guys have years. done awesome on that. Yeah, I know. And every yeah. time I get a call of a mom and kittens in somebody's garage, you know, I go right away and get them before those kittens become feral, right? Right, right. So, yeah. And, oh, Mike, I got to say, you know, the number of lost cats and dogs during the pandemic has just exploded. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if that's because people are home more. They're leaving their doors and windows open and the cats are escaping. And there's so many dogs also lost. I I just don't understand it. Okay, Maria, you guys do incredible work over there. Continued success to you. And thank you for the great work you do over there. Thank you so much, Mike. Let's talk about, I think, a much happier story right now. And have you heard that story about the treasure chest that has apparently been found in the United States. This is an amazing story. A guy named Forrest Fenn, who is an American millionaire who hid this treasure chest somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. A lot of people searched for it, including my next guest, Sasha Dent. She is a treasure hunter. But quickly have a, just before we uh, speak to Sasha, have a listen to this report from Inside Edition. A buried treasure mystery has just been solved. The wealthy antiques dealer who challenged the world to find his $2 million stash of gold is now announcing treasure was found. The chase is over. Forrest Fenn says the lucky guy sent him a photo to prove that the secret treasure chest had been located. The treasure mania started about 10 years ago when Fenn buried a chest filled with gold and jewels somewhere in the Rockies. He put clues to the treasure's whereabouts in a book he wrote. It's out there. It's waiting for someone. Over the decade, about 350,000 treasure hunters have searched for the chest in a vast area stretching from Montana to New Mexico. At least five people have lost their lives searching remote areas. I hid that treasure chest when I was 79 or 80, and I've, I've said that don't, don't search any place where a 79 or 80-year-old man couldn't hide that treasure chest. In 2017, we accompanied one determined searcher through the grueling landscape outside Santa Fe. Today could be my lucky day. Sasha Dent actually met her husband Jason while they were both looking for Forrest Fenn's treasure. How do you feel knowing that it's been found? It's been a lot of emotions, Uh, you know, excitement, sadness, because the adventure is over. So who found the treasure? Fenn refuses to say. The guy who found it does not want his name mentioned. He did offer this one clue. He's from back east. All right, that report from Inside Edition. Now, you heard Sasha Dent mentioned there. She's a treasure hunter who searched for this treasure, and Sasha joins me now. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. I think it's really cool to talk to a real, real-life real treasure hunter on the show today. So tell me a little bit about uh, where did you search for this uh, treasure chest? And I, I'm sorry you didn't find it yourself, but you've searched for this thing for a long time, right? I have six years. Um, wow. I searched an area that's between Santa Fe and Taos, which are two locations that were near near to Forest Fen. Okay. Um, he said it was hidden somewhere in the, was it the Rocky Mountains? Is that where it was? Yes. Somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, north of Santa Fe wow. was the general direction he gives you in his book. Okay, that's a lot of ground to cover. So um, did you, it was amazing that so many people searched for this thing, including some people who even died while they were looking for this. There was some, you were in some rough terrain, right? I mean, it's kind of dangerous searching for this treasure. Well, 
you know, looks can be deceiving. I never really did anything that was dangerous. And I personally searched for Forrest Fenn's treasure around 300 times in my estimation. Wow. And I never went anywhere that I was afraid to go. And, you know, I'm a woman. I'm a small woman. I'm like five foot three. And I went out alone many of those times. And I never felt like I was in fear for my life because I tried to remember Forrest's primary rule, which was don't go anywhere a 79 or 80 year old man can't go. Right, because he he says he hid the treasure himself, and that was his age. So, you know, it wasn't on the peak of a mountaintop or something. It was somewhere, he says, accessible, right? Well, I believe so, yes. And, I mean, he did encourage people to take their families with them while they're doing this. So knowing Forrest, I would say that he wouldn't put it anywhere that would be dangerous to take your kids with supervision. Now, I've heard some people, Sasha, wonder if this whole thing was maybe just a publicity stunt. Did this treasure chest really exist? Has some? Did someone really actually find it? What are your thoughts on that? Because you know Forrest, right? So do you think th- you you believe this was the real deal? I do know Forrest, and I one hundred percent believe it's a real deal. We have eyewitness accounts of some very famous people. One of them, Douglas Preston, is a, a New York Times bestselling author and a dear friend of Forrest. He saw that treasure chest many times before oh. it was hidden. But uh, I have a YouTube channel that I do videos about the Forrest Fen treasure hunt on. And a little over a year ago, I actually did a video about this because this isn't the first major treasure hunt that's occurred. There was one that happened in the early 80s called Masquerade in England. And I researched the aftermath of what happened after that one was found. And in the video I did, I kind of predicted this scenario would occur. You have one subset of people who are going to say it never existed. You have another subset that say, no, it wasn't really found. And then you have another one that says, okay, no big deal. It was found. Let's move on. So, I mean, this reaction was kind of anticipated. I I even predicted the lawsuits he's facing now. Oh, which is why I always advocated for whoever found it should just remain quiet. Okay, we've just got a minute left here, Sasha. You searched for this treasure chest for a long time. Uh, the Forrest Fenn now says that someone has found it. Are you, how do you feel about that? Are you disappointed that you didn't find it yourself? At first I was. I mean, you know, there's going to be some disappointment, but at the same time there's some excitement because now I get to find a new adventure and move on to yeah. that. And this did consume a large portion of my free time. All of my vacation time was used looking for the Forest Fen treasure. And now I get to do other things with that time. So uh, there was some disappointment. But now looking at the situation as it's unfolding, I'm a little bit grateful I'm not the person who found it. Because there's a whole Pandora's box of problems coming for both Forest and the Finder. And I wouldn't even want to begin to think of how they maneuver through those things. But I will say I, I'm pretty excited and, and happy for whoever found it. And I genuinely hope they get to live out the rest of their life in peace and they get to do everything that they ever dreamed of. All right, Sasha. I like your outlook on life there. Thanks for coming on to talk about this. Thanks for having me, Mike.